Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and I'm delighted to be joined first up on the programme by Zoe Parsons this morning. Um, Zoe is the founder and owner of Lake House and Station House Nurseries, a duo of nurseries and preschools based in North Somerset. Uh, Zoe, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us oh thank you scott it's a pleasure to be here it's a real pleasure having you on the air with us as well zoe um and the reason we're here of course is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus but considering the ongoing covid19 situation which i'm sure you'll agree has proven to be one of the greatest Mm -hmm. challenges of our time i feel it would be remiss of me if i didn't ask you just to what extent it's affected you and your business in recent months I have to say, Scott, it's probably been the toughest time I've ever had to navigate in my whole career. <laughs> I've become, it's the first time I've had to make decisions so quickly that impact so many people in the absence of kind of that prior experience of, of the time. You said it's unprecedented and, and, and the guidance, so a really unpredictable time. But I'm fortunate that we are still here. We are now fully operational, so although it has impacted us, us my staff and our families greatly we are still here to tell the tale (laughs) and in terms of adapting to this new reality under new safety procedures having to deal with sort of reduced intakes as well how has that been for you from a leadership perspective um it has been incredibly challenging but i think that um what we have endeavored to do and done so well throughout is to provide clarity and, and reassurance so both to the team and also to our parents. We did remain open throughout the entire period. So um, I consolidated both of my nurses into one and we were able to provide an emergency service to support key workers and also um, our our vulnerable children. So I think remaining open actually um, enabled me to really survey what was going on, put lots of procedures in place and, and test those on a daily basis. Um, we um, formed a relationship with uh, a company that provides um, viral fogging and fumigation. So we started doing that on a weekly basis, um, obviously enhanced cleaning regimes and lots and lots of communication <laughs> to everybody. So um, I think having those reduced numbers for, for well, between the, um, I think it was like the 23rd of March and the 1st of June really helped me to kind of yeah, navigate through and um, yeah, and it, it worked incredibly well. Mm. And as well as, of course, learning a lot from that, I suppose on the flip side, it's also been very mentally taxing, hasn't it? Because mm-hmm. um, you've not just been having to work with some of your colleagues and some of the parents of the uh, the children as well, who I imagine will have been quite uncertain, quite worried, but also with this, the mental health and well-being of the children themselves that have to be taken into consideration in your line of work as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel that um, when we were looking after the children, particularly those of of emergency services personnel, um, the children needed a lot of support. They weren't really talking through initially what was going on, but they hear everything. Um, So lots of kind of stories, lots of things, lots of and actually they then started talking and just in their role play, you would hear them saying, oh, no we can't get coronavirus here you've got to be very careful or no we can't get married today because um we can't have a wedding so they were they were they were they were amazing the children they're very resilient they just wanted a structure 
and, and the routine. I think um, from a mental health perspective, um, having lots of fresh air, having well, being fortunate enough to have great weather, we're outside all of the time. I think for our team as well, just having um, time and space and being in a calm environment really, really helped us through. And albeit it's been a very sensitive and a very challenging time for everybody, mm-hmm. there are some real positives that have come from mm-hmm. this in terms of the sense of national unity that there's been, the fact that there's been a lot of innovation as well during this time to keep vital services going, and that's helped galvanise different businesses and different organisations. Yeah. So yeah. what have been some of the positives throughout this period for yourselves in your case? Well, as you say, Scott, I think for some this time has been an absolute um, gift. I think there's been a real redressing of, of balance and finding what's important um, in your life in terms of family, friends, environment. And certainly we've got um, like 400 parents that we interact with. And the majority of those people really saw, I think the first few weeks was, was chaos as people came, came to understand what was actually going on and how that was going to impact them um, financially, um, but also emotionally. Um, but then after that, people really were able to take a little bit of a step back and think, well, actually, no, these are the important things in my life. I think um, for others, clearly, it has been very uh, traumatic for some. But what we found is that people um, have become more patient. Parents um, become much more appreciative of the team and the care that they're providing. Um, there's a lot more kind of listening and stories and parents being out and about with children, um, obviously constantly juggling um, because they still had to work too. So it wasn't mm. incredibly high, but we actually saw people making the most of it and, and having lovely conversations and, and being positive. Um, so that, I think, really helped us. And some of those changes in terms of, Time have we, we've actually taken through, so we're not allowed parents to come into the into the buildings. So parents are dropping off outside of the nursery and having shorter handovers. And initially, we were really worried about that because we really pride ourselves on having fantastically deep parent relationships and partnerships. Um, and we thought, oh my gosh, how is this going to impact? But actually, it's really been embraced. I think as long as you keep, uh, we use the word kind of being agile and changing and looking to the guidance and updating it so you're not keeping people waiting or putting um, policies and procedures in place that don't make sense. As long as people understand why you're doing things, we've actually found that those relationships have actually become stronger um, Mm. as we've worked together to navigate this time. And um, another thing um, as well during this uh, period of time is that we've seen um, so many different features of the lockdown period come into play out of necessity. But even when COVID-19 is no longer um, an issue in, say, maybe one, two years time, hopefully, um, do you see some features of this period becoming a permanent fixture in the way that maybe your sector operates, just out of um, concern and maybe more caution than anything? Um, uh, Yes, I do think so. I think that For us, certainly, we um, I've just said about the transitions and parents dropping off and picking up, and we do believe we'll probably keep the places of parents not entering into the children's playroom. So um, hopefully they can re-enter the building um, at at some point in the near future, but entering, going in and out of the playrooms, we've certainly found that um, transition times, which sometimes can be tricky as someone else's mum and dad 
come to pick them up and, and, <laughs> and another child's aren't there. Sometimes that's quite upsetting. Um, and actually we found that children have settled so, and resettled so quickly during this period. Um, and they're loving that, that routine. And, and as I said, that, that kind of calm but challenging environment. And so we don't think we will go back to parents um, entering the rooms. We do now do a lot more um, kind of via video, video link or, or live videos, um, both for our teens and for our parents. And whilst those are, um, I think, quite challenging initially, we've all got used to them and we all kind of appreciate that, that we can do things quite quickly, actually, whether we're running a behaviour management course or we're just updating parents on their children's progress. Actually, it works quite well just being able to phone people up and and and, and using a, a video conferencing tool to do that mm. so i think there's a number of things that certainly i and my team have learned that we will look to continue um when this period is passed and one thing in particular that I've um, seen during this period, uh, Zoe, of course, um, do feel free to disagree with me, if you will, is that <laughs> leaders have become very, very self-aware of their need to provide direction and inspiration to those um, around them. And there's been a lot of pressure during this time for them to do that amid all the uncertainty and all the worry, of course. Um, but as someone in a leadership position yourself, um, what is it that inspires you during this time when you need a little bit of direction and a little bit of inspiration where is it that you tend to look to for it um i'm really fortunate to have some uh, amazing colleagues and um i certainly called on them during during this time period so um previous colleagues in, in places that i've worked that um are operating at, at different levels and have different experiences that's worked incredibly well um one of my, my best friends has uh, yeah, been on the end of the telephone a lot during this period. But I've also just loved listening to different podcasts and um, just listening to people like Louis Theroux and, and the people that he's been interviewing. It's just been, I find, really inspirational and really calming for me. Um, lots of different meditative podcasts have really helped. Um, I, I search for people who kind of share that integrity. So mm-hmm. people who are are doing things for the right reasons. Um, it has taught me, I think, people show their true colours in times of crisis, and um, it's really made me really think very carefully about who I, who I follow and, and who I take the lead from. But I think there are so many inspirational people out there, and what's great is they're so accessible at the moment. Mm. So it isn't that I have to kind of pay hundreds of pounds to go on, on a course to see them. I'm actually, they're posting content quite regularly, um, and I find that, yeah, both calming but also it really makes me think I've got children at school too so I've, I've it's been great receiving communications from different schools and um, different businesses and you kind of take um, elements of that and kind of borrow with pride and put that together so that you actually really do you are I'm communicating myself um, with great clarity so I think in terms of that, I think social media has been actually fantastic help mm. <laughs> um, in, in these times. But uh, for me, that giving other people um, reassurance um, and empathy, we have, I have had to be a lot more directive than usual. Usually we follow very kind of coaching style of leadership, but I have had to just make decisions. But then hopefully in terms of, lots of calls with people and communications been able to bring them on board and, and more importantly change them as the guidance changes um, and be real 
um, I have <laughs> gone through a roller coaster of emotions, and I, and I haven't mm. hidden those from from my my team or even my parents. I think we have to be real. Um, they are unprecedented times. Absolutely. You have to be real and authentic. You have to be empathetic. You have to keep the communication channels open um, as well, just to make sure everybody stays informed because that leadership from a distance, especially at times, has been so, so important. But throughout this time, as you rightly say there, it's important to remember that we're certainly not alone. There are plenty of resources Mm. that we can look to to learn from. Um, It's Mm. good also and very therapeutic to understand that we're all very much in the same boat in leadership roles here um, as well. And when we were talking of sort of inspirational sort of leadership, figures who sort of do things the right way as you say um one name that of course um, stands out from history is of course someone like nelson mandela for example and one thing that he actually said was that you should surround yourself with people who are better than you are and given how much leaders have had to fall back upon their teams during this time and rely upon them to give their all that piece of advice is so so important isn't it absolutely absolutely i couldn't agree with it more couldn't agree with it more and that's really really helped me um over this period now unfortunately zoe um, our time on the program this morning is drawing to its close but just before we do wrap things up um we know over the next 12 months that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we live in the way that we work but what is next for you during this period at lake house and station house nurseries and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve where is it you want to be in 12 months time um, in, in 12 months' time, um, we we are rated outstanding nurseries, but I really want our parents to still be proud of choosing us as a childcare provider. Um, we are incredibly fortunate with with our occupancy, but I think as pressure comes um, on our parents financially through their roles and, and the, the incredible amount of roles that are being lost, um, I'm looking to see what extra services that we can provide that, God forbid, we do have to close down again, that we can do a lot more for our early years um, uh, remotely and from a distance to support our parents. Um, I think a lot more emphasis on supporting um, those vulnerable children and vulnerable families. As you know, it's in the news everywhere that funding is is incredibly tight in the early years, but anything that that I can do with my team to, to further support group of children I think is, is incredibly important that they that we do narrow that gap in attainment. Um, and really just working as a community. So us working together with the schools, obviously at, at this period of time, you know, there's lots of different people having to make decisions in isolation. And I would hope that the the communities that have come together, we can kind of have one voice to make it much easier for our, our parents. Um, and be much more supported together. So I think kind of building more of a community in terms mm. of education between us as private providers, but also in terms of the public sector which is, is top of the agenda. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in those endeavours, Zoe. Um, it seems like there's plenty to be getting on with over the course of the year, the next few months. And let's hope as well that we're not going to be set back during the winter by this mm-hmm. rise in cases that everybody's fearing, because there is, of yeah. course, that variable still very much in the mix. Um, but I certainly have really enjoyed having you join us on the programme today. And, you know, I actually think it would be fantastic to welcome you back onto the show at some point in this next year, just to see how things are coming along and reassess where we are. Oh, thank you so much. I'd love, I'd love to come back. It would be a real pleasure, Zoe. I've really enjoyed having you joining us today, as I say. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thank you, Scott. You too.
And I would reiterate that message to all of those tuning in today. Do continue to look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. I was speaking on the programme today to Zoe Parsons, founder and owner of Lake House and Station House Nurseries in North Somerset. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He's been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react. uh, And Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.